today on Ag News Daily. There was a long uh, period of time there where education in the field of agriculture was definitely needed. Uh, in the meantime, of course, I was a degreed meteorologist, so it was easy to, to meld the two together once I came up to speed on agriculture. Happy Friday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast, folks. Delaney Howell joined by Ashton Carr today. Ashton, what are you doing heading into this weekend? You know, I don't have a whole lot of plans for the weekend, but Texas Tech, we are in the Big 12 Conference. And so we kick off our football season this weekend. We have a 7 p.m. opener on Saturday, and I believe it's with Houston Baptist University. So haven't quite figured out what's going to go on yet. Our tailgating, of course, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, it's different rules and regulations now. So I'm not really too sure what the weekend brings for me, but I will definitely be watching some Texas Tech football. So will they be allowing fans into the stadiums this year? Yes, for Texas Tech, at least. Um, it is down to 25% capacity and I'm not exactly sure how many total people there will be, but usually tech, we just get to swipe our student IDs to home athletic games. And for football this year, they refunded us that fee on our tuition and we actually have to go and buy tickets now. So it's definitely a different process, but hopefully With uh, all things considered, it goes well and we continue to stay open. But, of course, we're just going to have to wait and see after this weekend about COVID-19 numbers and if it goes well with these new processes. Yeah, absolutely. That'll be interesting to see. But I'm excited to at least see we're getting to some sort of normalcy and going to have some fall sports. I know the Chiefs played last night, which was good to see. They had actual fans in the stadium. You had to wear a mask. But... uh, for all those football and sports fans out there, they're probably excited to see us return to that as well. Absolutely, Delaney. But to kick things off, I have some good news for our dairy farmers, dairy producers. Dairy sales have gone up at two retail level since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. The Dairy Checkoff Program says the COVID-19 pandemic brought changes to consumer buying patterns, which we talked about that a little earlier this year when I first started with you guys talking about consumer buying patterns, and it was definitely something to be seen within the dairy industry. Tom Gallagher with Dairy Management Incorporated said that there are multiple reasons why people bought what they bought during the spring pandemic buying. He says when COVID-19 arrived, fewer people ate their breakfast on the go, which is good for the dairy industry. And he was quoted as saying, I think with more and more people, probably forever, eating breakfast at home instead of on the go, that is an opportunity for us. And Gallagher says that breakfast cereal sales have been sliding for years because of sugar content and the difficulty of eating it on the go, which in turn affected fluid milk sales. But cereal and milk sales increased during the pandemic. David Mounts of Enmar Intelligence says dairy retail sales are also up from March through July because of how people shop since the outbreak began. And he was quoted as saying, the consumer is making less trips and buying more each time they go to the store. Our total sales are up 10% versus a year ago. In May, retailers are up much, much higher numbers than that. So it's definitely some good news for the dairy industry. 
You know, though, I am surprised a little bit by those increased numbers because I think people are buying and stocking up on more foods, proteins especially, but dairy products are the one thing that seem hard for me in my mind to be able to stock up on. I mean, milk has an expiration date, butter, I mean, you can freeze butter, I guess, cheese, you can freeze it, I guess, but I don't know, those things seem like a little bit more of an um, expiring product to be able to stock up on them. You know, when I first read the article, Delaney, I thought the exact same thing because just for me, when I'm at school, I buy like one little thing of milk and sometimes I don't even use it. But when I am back home with my family, we are big milk drinkers. And so we go through a gallon in a week or two when I'm back home. And so while I was at home at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, my stepmom was pretty much stocking up on milk. She would buy two or three gallons at a time and we would go through it before it expired. So I guess with more families being at home together and you know being in the house more, it's a little bit more easy to buy those kinds of easy to expire foods. Yeah, I suppose so. That does make sense. But, uh, you know, in other market news, Ashton, today was actually the WASD report. I know I got it mixed up earlier this week, but we saw that report come out today and we saw some very favorable trading, especially for the soybean side of things. Corn and soybeans both had what I would consider, you know, neutral to, in soybeans case, very bullish numbers. But, it seems that analysts were not quite as excited about corn's numbers, although they realistically, I think, in the long term, are definitely not a hindrance for U.S. crop production. But what do you say, Ashton? Should we uh, run through some of these numbers? Let's do it, Delaney. So the reason I say that corn, in my opinion, was still at least more friendly than it was bearish is that at least we saw USDA recognize that, hey, we're not going to have as big of a crop and as many harvested acres as they were estimating for in the August report. So they came out with a reduced production, notably from, you know, a lower yield. They're now pegging our national yield at a 178.5, which is still a record yield, but about three and a half bushels lower than what they were forecasting in August. They also noted that we're going to have reduced harvested area. Of course, hello, look at Iowa here. Um, and then they also noted that we're going to see some lower corn usage for ethanol, but we're going to see that offset here by some larger export numbers and smaller ending stocks. So overall, I feel like, you know, at least the USDA didn't raise those numbers. I think those seem at least somewhat favorable for corn moving forward. And they also raised the average price of corn to 350 per bushel, which yes, I recognize the irony there because our, I believe our um, insurance number is about 388, I want to say off the top of my head. And then taking a look at the soybean side of things, like I said, this was really where the report shined today because we saw U.S. soybean supplies, including lower beginning stocks, lower production and lower ending stocks, while also noting an increase in exports and soybean crush. So we saw the yield here and acreage, harvest acreage area here adjusted lower now an average yield of 51.9 bushels per acre. So that's just a 1.4 bushel acre bushels per acre drop compared to the August report. But uh, yeah, both corn and soybean futures 
put on some sharp gains on the day today. Soybeans really were the ones that uh, cleaned house, I would say, after this report, but both responded favorably to today's report. And I believe that USDA has started to factor in some of those storms that we saw sweep across Iowa, started to indicate that on their report today. But we'll get to those market numbers here in just a little bit. And Delaney, we will get to a conversation later on in today's episode, talking a little bit about the derecho storm. But until then, I want to follow up with the story that I shared yesterday about African swine fever in Germany. Pork producers in Germany are urging China not to impose a blanket ban on imports of German pork today after African swine fever was discovered in that dead wild boar cadaver that I talked about yesterday. And the German government is pressing for regional import bans from individual areas hit by the virus and not just blanket bans on German pork. And China accounts for nearly two-thirds of German pork exports. So it's definitely a big relationship that Germany is trying to keep with China after that virus was detected. But from what it sounds like, Germany has seen some more reports of African swine fever if they're only wanting an a a regional ban on individual areas hit with African swine fever. I wasn't able to really find any information on whether or not they have had an increase in cases, but I'm, I'm thinking that there are some reports that have come to light. Yeah, there certainly are. And, you know, yesterday we saw that limit move up in the hog markets, I think largely because of this new concern with African swine fever today. They did not uh, well, I, December actually traded the limits, not the expanded limits, but they both still continue to rally on that news. So that's definitely a story we're going to have to continue to keep an eye on, Ashton. It doesn't seem like the African swine fever has really cycled through the news wires yet. But another thing that unfortunately is a long ways from getting cycled out of the news cycle is the coronavirus. In this instance, more aid for a coronavirus bill. We saw Senate Republicans and um, Democrats are were intended to vote on a bill yesterday, but Senate Republicans say that the chance of seeing another big bill go through are dead after Democrats blocked the movement of a pared down bill on Thursday. But on the other side of the aisle, Democrats are saying they still believe that there is a chance we'll see some sort of bill done. They said that you have to have a good intersection between good public policy and politics, and they think that intersection is there. And so they've said they haven't given up on creating a bill. They still insist that Republicans agree to spend far more money on state and local governments than they have proposed. So um, Nancy Pelosi was quoted as saying, you know, quote, let's not have a skinny bill when we have a massive problem, end quote. So it seems that Republicans are wanting to push to a little slightly smaller bill than what Democrats have been urging for. And that is where a lot of the contention lies. But We will continue to watch that story and see if indeed we do get some sort of CFAP or coronavirus cares package, etc. pushed through at any point here in the near future. Definitely, Delaney. And I just have one more bit of news, and it is, of course, talking about the COVID-19 pandemic. 
but it is dealing with the federal government finding a Smithfield plant because of COVID-19. And the government has fined the Smithfield pork processing plant in Sioux Falls, South Dakota for COVID-19 related violations. OSHA, which is part of the U.S. Labor Department, says that Smithfield failed to protect its employees from the coronavirus. The $13,500 fine is the maximum allowed by the law, so I'm guessing they hit them with that maximum fine. But more than 1,200 Smithfield workers at that plant tested positive for the virus and four died. So um, I will continue to watch this story. It sounds like there's a little bit of not backlash, but I, I don't know what you would call it, but there's a little, you know, two two sides to every story. And so I'm going to continue to follow along with this, see what Smithfield says and see if anyone from the federal government actually comes out and has a statement as well. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of a federal government statement, we have not yet officially seen the wash or the, excuse me, the White House confirm what we've been speculating about the small refinery exemption waivers, but we did get confirmation from Iowa's Senator Joni Ernst that she has personally talked to White House officials about President Trump's reported directive to the EPA to deny those retroactive small refinery exemptions. And she still, she said that she felt confident the EPA would follow through on that order. And she said, you know, I've heard from the White House personally. Now I'd love for them to publicly state it. So it does sound like she is confirming that. However, I suppose if you're a, a, a cynist or a, a cynic and um, want to speculate on that, the other thing she could be doing is perhaps putting President Trump in a box by confirming that that was the case when, in fact, maybe he didn't issue that statement one way or the other. So she could be painting that picture for him. We don't know yet, but that was just the gist from that story. But the, I tell you what, Ashton, I am all out of news. That was all I've had for today. What about you? You know, Delaney, it was a pretty exciting news day, but I am all out as well. What do you say we hit the markets? Let's certainly do that because it was an exciting day in the markets today. If you are a grower, if you're an end user, maybe not quite as exciting. But like I mentioned there, grains are continuing on that upward trajectory. It's going to be really interesting to see where they open Sunday night into the overnight markets and into Monday morning. I think that's really going to set the picture here for what's to come moving into harvest season. Taking a look here first off at the September corn contract up seven and three quarters cent to close at 365 even. The December up three and a half cents to close at 368 and a half. In the swimming pits, huge moves today. Of course, not quite near the limits at 60 cents, but uh, did trade much, much higher on the day with the soybean contract September starting out at 20, excuse me, adding 20 and a half cents to close just over $10 at 10.05 and a half. November new crop contract adding 18 and a half cents to close just under $10 at 9.96 even. The wheat pits today were not sparked by quite some excitement in the WASD report as the September Chicago contract closed lower six and a quarter cent at 5.33 and three quarters. The December down six and three, six and a quarter cent to close at 5.42 flat. In the livestock markets, Green across the screen as the October live cattle contract closed up 42.5 cents at 105.52. The December added 47.5 cents to close at 
in the feeder cattle pits, the September contract added 82.5 cents to close at 140 flat, while the October added 97.5 cents to close at 140.57 and a half. And in the lean hog pits, big gains again today as the October contract added $2.20 to close at 66.57. The December added 3.15 to close at 66 on the nose. And looking over at the class three dairy milk futures, the October contract adding 61 cents today to close at 19.24. The November up 45 to end at 17.72. Without further ado, Ashton, why don't you tell us who we're talking to for today's Friday interview? Today we are talking to Drew Lerner, who is the Senior Agricultural Meteorologist for World Weather Incorporated. Today on the podcast, we have Drew Lerner, who is the Senior Agricultural Meteorologist at World Weather Incorporated. Drew, thank you so much for taking the time out of your Friday to talk to us. You bet. Thank you for the opportunity. So before we kick things off, why don't you tell me and our listeners a little bit about your background in meteorology and in agriculture? Wow. Well, that uh, you know, I began... Uh, in the field of meteorology in 1978. And in that year, I was working in India. I actually went to India to help out on a study for their India monsoon season uh, that was sponsored by the university that I was associated with at the time. And I got to travel around through a big part of the tropics, learning all kinds of things about monsoonal airflow and whatnot. I landed a job in 1979 uh, with a small company that was doing utility uh, forecasts, and uh, the, comp- the parent company decided that we needed to focus on agriculture. So starting in late in 1979, early 1980, we started becoming a, a very uh, significant agricultural weather forecasting company, and our target was uh, to support the commodity markets back in those days. And we were covering the weather for around the world. One of the few international weather forecasting companies at the time. Uh, the world's changed a lot since then. Uh, and the, the company I was with at that time uh, went kind of belly up at some point. So I, w- I moved to my basement and started World Weather Incorporated. And, and I've been uh, taking care of international weather uh, ever since then. Well, Drew, that is a very fascinating story. I'm a little bit jealous that you got to go abroad and all that stuff. It's definitely something that I want to do in the future. But how do you combine weather forecasting with agricultural production? You know, ag is so impacted by weather, of course. So how do you take your weather forecasts and predict what will happen and how it will affect ag? Well, obviously, uh, there has to be a fundamental understanding of crop development processes. Uh, you know, what temperatures are critical for a, a plant to begin its development? You know, when is it not good to have a frost or a freeze? At, you know, what point in the, in the life cycle of the, of the crop is rain important and when it isn't? So uh, there was a long uh, period of time there where education in the field of agriculture was definitely needed. In the meantime, of course, I was a degreed meteorologist, so it was easy to to meld the two together once I came up to speed on agriculture. Uh, and over the years, uh, by covering all of the crops, all the major uh, traded crops in the world, uh, we've become pretty good, uh, pretty much experts in the 
field of agricultural meteorology. And it's really just a matter of being good weather forecasters and knowing uh, how to interpret the various computer forecast models and then knowing what the crop needs and what stage of development it is in and, you know, applying the two so that we can interpret how the weather uh, has already impacted the crop and how it will impact the crop as we move forward. And speaking of how it will impact the crop and how to move forward, what are you seeing for weather patterns moving forward during harvest as some farmers are gearing up within the next few weeks or so to start harvesting their crops? Yeah, you know, the best advice I can give to the uh, U.S. forecaster, U.S. forecasters, the best advice I can give to U.S. farmers is probably take full advantage of the good weather while we've got it. Now, I know that's natural for them, uh, but what I'm trying to get at is that I see conditions deteriorating down the road a bit. Uh, so the rest of September into October won't be too bad. It'll be a fairly good environment for getting a lot of field work done. Uh, but I am concerned about changes in the weather pattern as we go deeper into October and especially into November. I think November is going to provide us a lot of uh, uh, weather extremes where we'll have some periods of uh, good drying conditions, but we're also going to have some wild weather, a little rain and some snow, some cold temperatures. It looks like a very active month of weather, and I think it will probably continue into December perhaps as well. So the earliest that we can get into the fields and get the harvest completed, the better off we're always gonna be. And that's a general rule anyway, but I certainly see on the forecast charts right now, the potential for some deteriorating conditions. Now, this will probably be more impacting on the Midwest uh, than on the Great Plains, uh, but uh, both areas will, to a certain degree, have some of this bias. So I've been seeing recently a couple of states and areas have seen some pretty early snow. So how is that really going to affect their harvest? Well, actually, this whole cold surge that we've had here recently uh, is quite an interesting phenomenon, and it is an anomalous, uh, an anomaly to the pattern that is occurring across North America right now. The only reason why this event took place has to do with a, a weather change of dramatic uh, intensity that was underway in the eastern part of Asia. Uh, what I'm talking about is that there was two very large typhoons that developed over the Western Pacific Ocean, moved up through the Korean Peninsula and up into northeastern China. And one right after the other, there was only about a three to four day uh, gap between the two storms. And they both moved over the same basic area. And because of their size and their ability to transport huge amounts of warm air and moist air to higher latitudes, it ended, they ended up uh, contributing to a ridge of high pressure that was over northwestern parts of the Pacific Ocean. Now, I know you're probably scratching your head going, what does this have to do with the U.S. snow event? Well, the, what happens is that when you get a situation like this to take place, it causes a chain reaction in the atmosphere. You get a building ridge of high pressure in the northwestern Pacific, and then that creates a deep low pressure trough over the north central parts of the Pacific, which in turn causes a stronger ridge to develop in the Gulf of Alaska. Well, it's the Gulf of Alaska ridge that got to uh, become fairly strong that created the cold surge. 
And that cold surge came down pretty deeply, obviously, into the central parts of North America, causing all that freezes uh, that occurred in portions of Canada's prairies. And the cold air went straight southward into uh, parts of uh, the plains and the eastern slope areas of the Rocky Mountains. Well, the cold was so intense uh, that it, it squeezed moisture out of the atmosphere that caused precipitation. And of course, the cold temperatures themselves changed that precipitation over to snow. Now, this event was, as I mentioned, an anomaly to what the prevailing weather pattern is. And it was, it has only occurred because of these typhoons that took place. The typhoons are gone. We're not expecting to see anything like that again. And so our weather pattern is going to resume what it was before. And that pattern does not favor a cold uh, autumn. It actually favors a warmer bias. So I do not think this is any kind of an ominous sign of weather to come. We'll actually get away from this. We'll go back into really an Indian summer environment, which should be quite favorable for farming activity for these next few weeks. So I think that uh, we're done with all the suffering for now. You know, Drew, that is just so great to hear because I think, you know, myself and maybe some other folks thought that this meant that we would have like a pretty early freeze or a pretty cold fall. But moving on from that, I, I want to know why we have seen such big weather disasters this year. You know, we're seeing lots of wildfires going on in the West, hurricanes, the derecho storm that hit the Midwest. So is there anything that we can really link back to that has caused all of these weather and environmental issues? Well, there's there's two uh, basic schools of thought here. Uh, the first is certainly the climate change environment that we've been enduring and to a large degree that is the primary reason we've heated up the atmosphere we've heated up the oceans uh, we're introducing tremendous volumes of moisture into the atmosphere, and that is creating uh, an environment uh, that is just poised for weather extremes, because when we get pockets of cool air around, like we saw this past week, uh, there, there was a lot more moisture that can be condensed out of the atmosphere. So you get a, a tremendous uh, amount of atmospheric energy available to create storms, and the storms have become larger in size and the, the contrast in air mass conditions becomes so dramatic that we get some pretty wild weather to occur. Now, that can explain the, the, certainly the, the crazy weather we've had in the central parts of the U.S. and all the crazy uh, storms that have occurred in China with their flooding this year. And we can go on and on and on. Uh, the fires that are occurring, uh, you know, we had some serious wildfires in Australia earlier this year and last year. And of course, California and parts of the Western U.S. have been enduring this on a regular basis. Well, part of this is just a result of the dry bias that has occurred in these areas. The drought that occurred in Australia over this past uh, year, and actually multiple years, uh, you know, a lot of folks think it's climate change that has brought this upon the area, and it's ex an example of what's to come over many years. But one of the things that I, I get a little frustrated about is that uh, no one's looking at the historical record of weather. Uh, the conditions in Australia over the past two years with the wildfires and the extreme drought was very similar to what they call the Federation drought that occurred in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. And the duration of the drought in Australia uh, during that period was as extreme as the past four years have been in Australia more recently. 
and the parallel to the wildfires and the loss of crop production and all that are very, very similar. Uh, the biggest difference is that, the, of course, the human population is many times greater than it was back then. And so the impact on, you know, our lives becomes more significant. The same kind of thing can be applied to the California and the Western United States uh, fires. Uh, there is some certainly reason why we should be concerned about the climate changing and and the, these dryness, uh, dry fires that are occurring out there occurring more often. But if you think back a ways, uh, we've had a lot of similar occurrences over the years. The, the 1980s was a, a very impressive stretch of dry years for the Western United States, and there was also trouble with fires back in those days too. The difference is that the population now in the Western United States is so much greater that there's a, a tendency, first of all, for fires to get started more easily because there's more people out using fire that shouldn't be, or uh, perhaps, uh, you know, this, it's just the uh, the increased uh, housing that's in, in these hills where the fires have occurred in the past. Anyway, everything is magnified greatly. Uh, there is certainly reason to believe that some of these extremes that are occurring around the world are linked to the climate change that's underway. And I certainly don't want to discount that or make it sound like that we can't make that link because there is a link in some cases. Uh, in the case of the derecho that occurred uh, across Iowa and Illinois uh, earlier this summer, I'm not sure that we can link that to a climate issue. Uh, that kind of event has occurred in the past, although this one was certainly more widespread and, and uh, certainly a little bit more intense than anything we've seen recently. But I don't think we can uh, use the climate issue as a reason for that occurrence. Uh, you know, intense weather events occur from time to time, and there's always something that occurs, uh, you know, that is a little bit more extreme than something that occurred previously. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they, uh, you know, that this is a, a result of of human climate interaction. Uh, but there are times when we can certainly say that there is a link and certainly the excessive rains that have occurred in China recently and all the terrible flooding that's occurred over there can be directly linked with the global warmup that's taken place. And uh, one of the things that we've noticed in China is that uh, we've seen serious flooding events like this in the past and they always seem to occur around the solar minimum. So we're at a solar minimum right now. So it's interesting to see this kind of extreme link to that. So there's a lot more to the weather than, than just the, you know, the climate change and the, the suggestion that man's causing all these problems. I think there's much bigger picture. And at the beginning of this talk, I kind of mentioned that there's two uh, 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 schools of thought. The other is. Uh, a biblical one, and I'm only going to make this very brief, but the, you know, the Bible talks about uh, end times and how there's going to be all these extremes with uh, pandemics and uh, extreme weather and all this stuff. So there's some folks out there that believe that this is linked to those times, too. Well, Drew, this is certainly interesting. Whenever I think about weather, I never think of it as such a broad thing. But, you know, it, it really is such a unique science. But before we go, I kind of just want to take things back to World Weather Incorporated. Why don't you tell our listeners about your services at World Weather Incorporated and where they can find you guys online? Well, I appreciate that as an opportunity. Uh, World Weather Incorporated uh, is a very broad-based 
based international weather company. We do all kinds of weather for all kinds of industries, not only just the ag industry, but also energy markets. And we do a lot of uh, retail and shipping type uh, weather forecasting as well. And there's no place on the planet that we don't do some kind of forecast for. Uh, you can find us at www.worldweather.cc. Now, it's real important that if you're looking for us on the Internet, that you don't go to worldweather.com because that's not us. Uh, we're worldweather.cc. Uh, we uh, can also be contacted email-wise at worldweather at bizkc.rr.com. That's World weather, all one word, just like it sounds, at B as in boy, I, Z as in zebra, K as in kite, C as in cat, dot R-R dot com. Well, again, folks, that was Drew Lerner, the Senior Agricultural Meteorologist at World Weather Incorporated. Drew, thanks again for coming on today. Thank you and have a great day. It was a very interesting conversation that I got to have with Drew today. And like I said during the interview, I never really think of weather as being so broad, but it is a really cool science. And it was really great to hear about the upcoming weather patterns that we might see as we go into harvest. But we'll just have to have Drew on again to talk to us about how harvest has gone with weather and all of that fun stuff. Yeah, we certainly will. And I'm disappointed I missed that conversation. I actually originally met Drew on a trip to Chile last last spring for the United Soybean Export Council. He's a great speaker, does a lot on talking weather and uh, very respected in his specific niche. So again, a big thank you to Drew for coming on the podcast for us today. But we're always getting distinguished guests like Drew and others to come on the Ag News Daily Podcast. So be sure to check out some past episodes with some of those distinguished guests that we've had on. You can find us at agnewsdaily.com or interact with us on social media at Ag News Daily on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Ashton, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.